Professor Christopher Helgen is a zoologist, renowned for his daring expeditions to far-flung corners of the globe. He's found dozens of previously undiscovered species of mammal. When he's not out in the field, he's looking for clues for his next adventure in the back rooms of world museums. I found him in a dusty space full of animal skeletons, deep in the bowels of London's famous Natural History Museum. Chris, I've been allowed behind the scenes of the Natural History Museum, which is where you work, trawling through the archives here, looking for, you know, not necessarily new species, but undiscovered species, is that right? Well, that's right. They might not be new in the sense they've just evolved, but they may have been overlooked by science until now. That's one of my spe specialties as a zoologist, is you know uncovering these uh, pieces of the tree of life, in my case for mammals, that have gone overlooked so far by science. What's your most memorable discovery, if I can ask you that? Yeah, uh, there's, there's many that stand out. Uh, one of, I think, the, my favorite is of an animal that I came to call the Olinguito. <laughs> this is a gorgeous creature. It's adorable. It has uh, this fluffy long fur. Uh, it's related to a raccoon. And the story starts in a place just like this where we're sitting, uh, in behind the scenes of the Natural History Museum. Now, you know, set the stage, here we are, Max. Uh, you know, when people come to the museum, they're usually envisioning the galleries out front, right? They're seeing a dinosaur, a skeleton, the blue whale here. It's quiet. All we have are these cabinets, and this is where the magic happens for me. This is where you know specimens from expeditions, decades, centuries past. You know specimens collected by Darwin himself, Teddy Roosevelt, Alfred Russell Wallace. They're, they're to be found along with many others. So uh, I was in the Field Museum in Chicago, which is one of the great uh, natural history museums, and I was studying members of the raccoon family. Long story, but one of my favorite groups of mammals. And I pulled out a drawer. Uh, metal, big metal drawer, heavy, I pulled it out and it stopped me in my tracks because I saw these gorgeous red, brown, fluffy furs and they were like no member of the raccoon family I'd ever seen. Now, I've spent many years, my whole life almost, training myself to know by sight, you know, anatomy, uh, external appearance, almost every mammal on the planet, right? And so when I see something that I don't instantly recognize, it sets off a trigger for me. It says, oh my goodness, what is this? There were some boxes next to these pelts, these skins, that had uh, skulls in them. So you imagine I pull a lid off a box, I look a little closer and I say, wow, the shape of these molars is something like I've never seen. Um, the way that the ear bones are housed at the back of the skull, this is something I haven't seen, this is how I work. And I said, could it be that this is an animal that all zoologists had overlooked until now? Um, a long story short, I worked it all through kind of as a detective in the museum, mm -hmm. and indeed it was. So we studied the animal's DNA, we studied its anatomy. This was you know, quite a substantial um, branch of evolution in this group of mammals that had gone undetected. I used the information, this had been in the museum for more than 50 mm -hmm. years, information on the tags to sort of pick a place, and this is often how I work too, to go out into the wild, see if we could find it. Kind of a needle in a haystack mission. The very first night we went to a protected area in Ecuador and we found this animal in, alive in the wild. That's crazy. So <laughs> what on earth went through your mind when you saw uh, it? I mean, it's a, a, a literal eureka moment, incredible, as it was in the museum to start with, as it was as we worked through the genetic results, there all the way to this moment in the, in the forest itself. And that is usually how I work. I, I work um, taking in, you know, uh, in two places. I work in the most remote, natural areas that are left on our planet, the wildest places you can imagine, and 
in the great natural history museums of the world. So that turned out to be a species new to science uh, called the Olingita. We gave it its scientific name uh, for the first time in 2013. I had a big press conference. We announced, uh, announced it. We had pictures of the animal, just glorious. And um, imagine how exciting this is for me as a scientist. I, I'm there to you know, introduce it at least formally to uh, the scientific community, the global public for the first time. Some people fell in love with this animal especially down in Colombia and Ecuador, where it was from. And a day after the announcement, a week, a month, my inbox starts filling up with messages. And people are asking questions. They're sending me pictures. They say, is this an Olingita? Or is this an Olingita? <laughs> sometimes yes, sometimes no. But we're talking about school kids and school classes and bird watchers and you know, national park rangers. And within a year, we did another announcement where we were able to tell the world a lot more about the Olingita, yeah. not from work that I'd done, but from information that the world had sent back to me. And so you, you, know, you kind of unleash any scientific discovery uh, in, onto the world, and you know, sometimes it kind of comes back at you with interest in this glorious way. Someone must have seen one before. Right. So why had it not been identified as a separate species? Right, great question. How is it that you know, one of this, you know, this amazing, adorable, distinctive animal goes till 2013 to get its scientific name? Well, obviously, um, for thousands of years, people have lived alongside this animal, so there must be some kinds of you know, indigenous knowledge of it. That said, um, it's not clear that um, you know, anyone has uh, given it a name that's unique to it or that it has distinguished it. Um, what we found is, is um, it's usually confused with other animals that live up in trees at night, like mm -hmm. it does. So night monkeys, kinkajous, there's another animal that's somewhat similar, related to raccoons, called an olingo. All of these can live in the same forest. But um, you know, like anything in science, oftentimes these discoveries happen by kind of looking a little closer at what we thought we know. You know how many of these creatures are in this forest and, and make it tick? Well, you know, scratch the surface and we found there's another one, and, uh, and it's a very special animal. And in this age of people being so concerned about conservation, you're actually bringing moments of happy news in that sort of world of darkness quite often. Right, absolutely. And there are so many uh, reasons to be concerned about, uh, about nature and conservation. And uh, yes, of course, that is um, what attracts a lot of the attention. This is a happy story. And in several ways that you might not expect, one is that ultimately we've determined this is not an endangered species, this particular animal, the Olingito. We know it, you know, it has a wide enough distribution. It lives in enough protected areas. There's enough numbers of them out there uh, that you know, while we're concerned for its very specific cloud forest habitats, you know, they, they often will uh, you know, be cut down with human impact. Um, at the moment, it seems somewhat secure. The other thing that was really wonderful about that is that there's a lot of different remarkable creatures that live in these specific cloud forest habitats. This is the only place where the Olingito lives. And that boost that we got after this announcement about this you know, beautiful animal um, was something that, especially down in Colombia and Ecuador, was able to sort of be a flag that was raised to um, accentuate the importance of this particular habitat. So a happy story on a lot of ways. And how did you come up with the name? Mm, well, we, uh, the, it, it's uh, chosen as a Spanish name derived. So the animal that most uh, people living there and scientists as well had confused it with in the past is called an olingo also an obscure animal, but uh, so we called it sort of the little Oling Olingo in Spanish, the Olinguito. So yeah. It's a wonderful job. I mean, there'll be so many people listening 
so jealous, you know, ultimate thing to sort of discover, really, even better than treasure. Um, it's not the sort of job you'd <laughs> consider. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the sort of um, job you'd consider, though, growing up, because you'd assume that everything's been discovered. So how did you end up doing it? Right. No, you do. And people are constantly sort of surprised hmm. that you can do this, you know, in, in, this, in this day and age. You know, it might surprise, not surprise people that we could go into the depths of the, the ocean trenches and find something new to science or maybe, you know, count up the insects in the canopy of, of an Amazonian rainforest. But uh, yes, the truth is there are all kinds of um, aspects of natural history that are very little known even in our world today. So I grew up in Minnesota uh, in the United States, uh, the northern part up north near Canada, and I was uh, fascinated with animals from my earliest days. And uh, you know, like many kids are, of course, I loved cats and, and dogs and horses, but it was more than that. And it was more than a young obsession that many people have with dinosaurs or something similar. But, you know, there were, there were commonalities to those, those kinds of things we often see. But for me, as a little kid, a little thought flew into my mind. It was a big idea, you know, too big for a little, bit, little kid's head, but it was, how many are there? And I just remember from my earliest days thinking about that. Well, you know, I could see that there, there's horses and there's zebras uh, and, you know, they're similar. But, but wait, how many kinds are there? And similarly, okay, there's dogs and there's wolves and coyotes, but how many are there? And as a kid in this sort of um, organic way, I made some, I would make lists and notebooks. And, and, and as I, I grew up, I'd, you know, list the things I'd found in children's books or seen at the museum or gone to the zoo. And the lists grew. And of course, you know, as I could read more and more, they became, you know, uh, more developed and more mature and, and even more technical. As I'd order from, you know, the local library, I grew up in Coon Rapids, Minnesota. I'd put in orders at the library for, you know, special volumes about mammals, and they'd arrive, and it'd be this, this uh, great day for me. But, um, you know, ultimately, in some very real way, that idea never left my head, and that's what I still do you know, on the frontiers of the wildernesses of the world and in these great naturalist museums, I'm still after the answer to that question, how many are there? And I've named about 40 species of mammals as new to science Amazing. in my career so far, and I have a lot more in the pipeline. Um, so you're an example of someone who decided what they wanted to do and did it, or someone that just followed their passion and, you know, it, and, you know, took you here? Yeah, well, that's, that's uh, certainly part of it. I mean, um, there's a great luckiness in uh, my story in that, you know, I am one of uh, these folks that uh, caught a hold of an idea or a passion early on and have had, you know, the uh, ability to, every time there's any kind of fork in the road, big or small, you know, look at that and, and choose the path of life that's going to take me closer to that goal. And I've been able to do that. So I've had that drive and that passion is important. You know, in the United States growing up, you're especially told to follow your passion. Mm. You, know, uh, you know, that's good advice to some extent. Uh, I think, uh, you know, of course, I've grown up in science now and, and spent many years as a scientist. And I, I like to observe how people's careers proceed and, you know, how how students come into the field and how well they do. It's something I think a lot about. And um, passion is just part of that equation, you know, that drive, that sort of aspect of, of the heart, you know, and, the, you know, what, what motivates you in that, in that powerful emotional way. Um, but in science, too, what you need is, is to couple that with precision, you know, sort of you've got the passion, you also have the precision. And so, you know, if you're going to be successful in science, you're really going to need to, um, you know, let that passion drive you, but cultivate 
you know, very carefully um, over long hours and you know, long periods of apprenticeship and trial and error and different experiences, uh, the technical skills that are going to allow you to you know, be as good as you can be. And you know, that, that it, that's gonna be different in every kind of field. That might be a, a quantitative, you know, mathematical approach. That might be you know, getting to know the mammal anatomies you know, that I need to know, that sort of thing. But um, those have to be married together, the passion, precision, the heart and the head. Mm -hmm. And um, they're both necessary. And it's even more than that. You know, both of those, and I think in the most, and this is not just about science. I mean, you could think about um, I love music. I think a concert pianist or you know a professional violinist, you know the greats are going to be those that marry those things together. The great, incredible drive, the emotion, the passion, but also you know are technically brilliant, are absolutely at the top of their game in terms of precision. So both have to be there. Both have to be there in spades, but they also have to be tightly balanced. You know, if if one gets the better of anybody. Uh, it, it, it drives things in a spiral. And so, um, you know, burnout is something to be, you know, to be aware of in, in everybody's career. And we see that in science, too. Mm -hmm. You know, people with great passions, um, you know, can sometimes be, be driven to the almost to the edge. And the same can be true. People who have um, an unbelievable set of technical skills, but, you know, not quite the heart to mm -hmm. keep that burning, you know, they also may not, may not get there. And so I think... Um, it's, it's like that in science, it's probably like that in many fields. Maybe it's like that in journalism too, but you know, I think all of us yeah. need to make sure that that drive is coupled um, you know, with um, something that we're just very, very good at, and that takes cultivation. Yeah. Um, you're an example of someone who decided what they wanted to do and you, you got there, but were, were you open to opportunities along the way as well? Were you flexible as well to new ideas mm -hmm. and new paths as well, or did you close yourself off to other potential sort of avenues of interest? Yeah, well, great question. And I think that's, you know, that's really, really important. I think that um, I always had an idea of where I was going. And, you know, to some extent, it was very simple, very naive that that was uh, to study mammals. And particularly, you know, um, that I, again, was fascinated with, with the diversity, the richness of life, how many mammals are there. Um, but that, that took different forms at different parts of my life. You know, when I was very young, three and four, you know, I loved animals. My parents used to tell me, I said I wanted to be a farmer. You know, I wanted mm -hmm. to be, you know, hands-on with animals. That, that uh, evolved into, um, you know, eventually, uh, even at a very young age, knowing that I wanted to be a zoologist. And that's something that maybe I learned about watching television, especially reading something like National Geographic, those things that are accessible maybe to you as a kid growing up in the Midwest. But... Uh, um, I knew that's where I wanted to go. Now, what that would look like, I wasn't sure for a while. You know, I thought, okay, am I going to, you know, be someone that I see on TV who's, you know, wrestling wild animals and, you know, studying them in some way like that? Is it going to be, uh, I thought a lot about, you know, being driven by a passion for conservation, right, in, mm -hmm. our, in our endangered world. And, you know, am I going to work for a zoo or, you know, for a, a wildlife organization like that? It was when I went to university, that things really mm -hmm. crystallized for me. These questions about, you know, how many mammals are there, um, I realized there was one very, very 
key way to answer that, and that was to work in natural history museums. Mm -hmm. And I went to Harvard. I, uh, it's something that was very unusual in my family. We kind of come from a, uh, a close-knit uh, Norwegian-American you know, Lutheran uh, family in Minnesota, and uh, I was the first to kind of leave the uh, the state and go somewhere else. And I went to Harvard almost kind of naively, not because it's you know it has a, a, a tremendous reputation, because of course it does, but for a different reason. One, I had read as a teenager a book by a famous scientist, American scientist Edward Wilson, E.O. Wilson, this you know grand figure in in the study of the richness of life, and. He, it's called Naturalist, and he writes in that book about working at a place called the Museum of Comparative Zoology. And as soon as I saw that kind of turn of phrase, I thought, wow, you know, there is such a place. What, what could be, you know, a, more of a draw, more of a mecca than, than the Museum of Comparative Zoology? That absolutely stuck in my head. I, I did pretty well in school, and, you know, as, it, as things worked, you know, a couple decades ago in the United States, you do well in school, you start to get these flyers in the mail for different universities, and all of a sudden, there's an envelope from Harvard. And this is the first moment where it occurs to me, this came to me, it's addressed mm. to me, maybe I should apply. And in that entire naivety, I did, I applied, I got in, and then I went off to the Museum of Comparative Zoology. The years I spent at Harvard were entirely ensconced in that museum. I got to meet and work with people like Edward Wilson and Stephen Jay Gould, these people who are really uh, important in my world. And um, most importantly of all, I got to get my hands on cabinets and specimens behind the scenes, and I, that's where I developed that technical expertise in mammalogy. We talk about um, Harvard and also, you know, the greatest natural history museums in the world mm -hmm. where you work, greatest universities in the world, and a lot of people look at that and think, wow, that's just the ultimate sort of CV, but the way you're describing it, you weren't going around collecting these brands, you right. were really focused on the work. And actually, you weren't intimidated by Harvard because, you know, you didn't have that sort of history surrounding you and your family. That's exactly right. I was, I think, uh, it was an unusual path for me because that, the path, as you're kind of saying, wasn't the drive at all. What it was was the sort of, you know, the mission of getting to where I wanted to, to be, which was to, um, you know, be someone who could have a command, a global command of, uh, of mammalogy mm. and studying it in this way. And so that's where I learned, like I said, at university, that that is something that really had to happen in natural history museums. But I also learned that you know, at the same time, um, you know, there's a certain paucity to that. There's only so much you can learn, you know, in libraries and even in museums. Um, you also, if you're going to really get to know animals, you have to get out into the field mm -hmm. and study them in these wild places. And so um, I think, you know, that... Uh, that has been, you know, a, a secret formula for me all along mm -hmm. is, is um, you know, being willing to uh, join and lead expeditions to all these phenomenal places around the mm -hmm. world as well as, um, you know, do the, the, um, the kind of sometimes tedious work behind the scenes for years at a time working through the answers to these questions by making comparisons in museums. Um, you talk about um, colleagues having breakdowns like they do mm -hmm. in other industries. They're very driven, aren't they? Because it's so hard to get a job like yours. Have you considered, you know, what it is that does drive you and, you know, the positive and negative of that? No, I, I have. I have. It's, it can be hard to put your finger on and sometimes it's not, you know, something, a box that I open and, and, uh, and look at too closely. But uh, I think that uh, part of it runs deep to those early days where, as I mentioned, um, you know, I was 
motivated and interested by um, concepts of conservation and you know the idea of a changing world, uh, an endangered world. You know more and more as I you know learned you know so much as a kid about the language of mammalogy, the Latin names of things, the terminologies that that um, you know I started to sort of learn as a language. I also learned that so many of these these species uh, were endangered animals, and so. Um, that was a driving factor uh, always along as kind of thinking about where our world is going and, and whatnot. So that's kind of a, a higher aspirational aspect. Um, I think that I read so much as a child, and like I said, I was reading about scientists like, like Edward Wilson and others, and I was very uh, inspired and I was motivated by that. And uh, I think that I wanted to, uh, I felt a drive to um, to go to, to, to a different kind of place, to, to um, you know, leave where I was, was born, leave my kind of home area. Um, I had read so much about, you know, as kids do, adventures mm -hmm. and explorations, and, um, you know, there's a grandiose romance to such things that, um, you know, probably most of us grow up enough that we kind of leave that, mm -hmm. leave that at the door, but... Uh, uh, I was really motivated by that. You know, is there is this a world where we can still explore and make discoveries like this? And and many people along the way quite seriously told me that it was not mm -hmm. right. You know, that we must know most of the mammals already. Of course, maybe all of them. That you know, even if even if I could make a discovery or two like that, you know, that would mm -hmm. be that would be the end of it. People also gave me all kinds of advice along the way, like. You know, this kind of biology is is antedated. You know, this is not the future. You you want to be studying molecular biology, or you want to be, you know, uh, working on the cure for cancer, or things like that. You know, you get a lot of advice as a scientist. Um, but for me, um, that uh, romance mm -hmm. as aspect of exploration was something that drove, drove me too. So a bit of a fear of not seeing the wider world, seeing the world and everything that was there, even beyond what we knew. Yeah, I think that's that's part of it. Right, exactly. Um, you know, uh, early on, a drive for me, this is something I usually don't talk about, but, you know, I always, everyone kind of pegs me as this, someone who's had this early passion for animals, um, but there's almost an equal passion growing up in my mind for geography. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what I've done, of course, is found the perfect marriage of those two mm -hmm. things, too, to explore them. I have worked in so many countries around the world, and, you know, these uh, spots on the map that are often kind of blank spots for, you know, zoology, and that's been been wonderful. But, yeah, I think um, fear, you know, as, as you say, it can be a motivator. Mm. It, maybe it's not the best motivator. I mean, fear can be, um, can be both, you know, powerful motivator towards positive goals. It can also be debilitating, mm. right? It can also be crippling. Um, it can be, you know, a, a trauma that, that, um, that kind of keeps us stuck in place. But, yeah, I think that, I think that people are afraid. I think people are terrified of all kinds of things in their lives. I think a lot of scientists are too. I think I was, I think I was terrified of, you know, of not being relevant, mm. you know, of, of, uh, you know, I knew I wanted to be a scientist and I wanted to, you know, be in the ranks of, of things that I'd read about, be someone who, you know, made their life count mm. and who made great discoveries or, you know, perhaps I was afraid of, you know, not failing, but just never, never trying. Mm. And so um, that, I think, has definitely driven me out of Minnesota from my early days onward and, and continuing to explore all kinds of things. But, uh, it but, could have yeah. held you back, though, as well, couldn't it? You could still be there thinking, I'm going to succumb to this fear, but you actually used it to motivate you. 
Yeah, I think that's right. And uh, it's, it's funny. It almost kind of works in an opposite way to what you might expect. So a lot of the work that I've done has been in very difficult to work places, you know, places like Papua New Guinea, where I've worked for many, many years. And um, some of those, you know, situations that I've come across working in remote places have been really difficult. And the kinds of things that are, are you know, truly terrifying mm. often, you know, working with, um, you know, communities who, who um, might be going through conflicts or, you know, sometimes working with dangerous animals. Never have I had a fear of that sort of thing mm. as something that would hold me back. Again, if there is a fear, and I don't know if that's the right word, I would, <laughs> would, you know, would rather we're motivated by, you know, by more positive mm. things like hope, et cetera. But there, the fear, if there was one then, was uh, of, of not trying, of not uh, getting outside of my comfort zone, you know, not, mm. of not, uh, not exploring. Chris, thank you so much. <laughs> We're in the bowels of your motivation, but also of this amazing museum. It's wonderful to see. Thank you so much. An absolute pleasure, Max.